All right. Good evening. Matthew chapter 11, here's what we have. Jesus has just sent out the disciples. Okay, that's what he did in chapter 10. He sent them out on basically the first missionary journey. He grabbed all of his disciples together and he said, hey, go out into the towns and villages, perform miracles, share the gospel. He says, don't take any provisions with you. Remember, don't, don't take your extra clothes, don't take your extra shoes, don't take your money, leave that all behind and go. So they're all gone now, which is great because Jesus has all their stuff and it's a Peter's tunic. That might, you know, he won't be back for a while. Um, so that's where we pick this up in chapter 11. It said, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So he did not send them to their hometowns. And we know that because Jesus gives them specific instructions about when you come into a town, you're supposed to find someone who's worthy and lodge with them. If they'd gone to their hometowns, they would have gone home. Right. So they're going to other towns in the region, and Jesus is going to their hometowns. Now, why doesn't he send them to their own hometowns? Because Mark 6, 4 says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own home. And so Jesus spares them that. He sends them to other people, and he goes and teaches to their families. And this got me thinking about us sharing with our families and how important it is. But remember, even Jesus had trouble sharing with his families. And for those of us who have unsaved people in our families, yes, continue to share with them. Yes, continue to be an example to them. But I also think a great thing to do is to pray that God will bring someone else into their life to speak truth into them. Because so often they won't hear this. I also pray this for my children. Because there will come a day when right now my three-year-old is so sweet, and obviously she listens to everything I say, but someday it won't be that way. And someday I'm going to need other people to speak truth into her life. And so there's a community of people surrounding my children, and I'm so blessed by that. And we saw this play out when my wife and I were working in high school ministry. And there were some kids that we really plugged into and poured into their lives, and they had great parents. They were Wednesday night kids, if you know what I mean. But there were times where I would tell a young man or my wife would tell a young woman a truth, and then I would talk to their parents the next week, and their parents are like, so they came home and they were like, oh my gosh, James said this. It was great. He goes, I have been telling him that for years. What did you say differently? And I said, I, I wore cooler shoes. I don't know. But pray for your kids. Pray for your family members. Pray for those people you know that they would, someone would be brought into their life that could teach the gospel to them. And if you have a young man, a young woman, a niece, a nephew, a granddaughter, grandson, don't underestimate the voice you have in their life at times when their parents won't. It's hugely impactful. So that's verse one. We move on to verse two, and here's what it says. And when John, this is John the Baptist, had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? So you guys know the story of John the Baptist. Luke tells the story a little bit better. And Luke starts actually with John the Baptist's parents. He starts with his dad, a guy named Zacharias. 
And Zacharias had no children, and he goes into the temple to pray and plead, and in the temple, he meets an angel. And the angel says, Zacharias, you and your wife, you're going to have a child. Not only that, he is going to be a... Um, oh, I just blinked. That's good times. He's going to be like Samson, okay? He can't have wine. He can't touch dead bodies. Thank you. Um, so he's going to be set apart. And he also, this angel, quotes a prophecy from Malachi to Zechariah the dad and says that, that he's going to be like Elijah. He's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. And Zechariah the dad is like, we're really old. We're probably not going to be able to have kids. And so the angel looks at him and, and says, okay, because of your unbelief, you now are struck dumb. You cannot speak until your child is born. And so he comes out of the temple and everyone's like, what's going on? And he's like, right now, if that happened to us, what would we do? We'd grab a piece of paper and write everything down. Like I did a job for a guy the other day. I showed up at his house. He was deaf. He just grabbed a piece of paper. We went at it. We communicated. It was great. But you have to realize the chances of Zachariah being literate, very, very slim in this time. So he's cut off from communication. He's got sign language only. So true to the prophecy, Zachariah's wife gets pregnant. They have a son. His name is John, and he grows up, and he goes out in the wilderness, and he teaches and preaches. And it's interesting because after he's been teaching and preaching in the wilderness for a while, he runs into Jesus, right? And the Bible does these interesting encounters between John and Jesus because it appears that John doesn't know Jesus when they meet, but they're cousins. So you would think that they were growing up together. And what a lot of people believe, what a lot of Bible scholars say, is that you look at John's parents, remember what Zachariah says. He says, we're elderly. We can't have a baby there's a very good likelihood that they passed away and that because of John's upbringing, because he was a Nazarene, he would have been sent to basically a commune out in the wilderness to be set apart. Hey, there's, there, all these other crazy people are out there. You go out there and live with them. And so it's very likely that John grew up out in the wilderness and then he comes out of the wilderness and he starts preaching. And what does he preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he baptizes people. And then one day, here comes a guy and he baptizes him. And John says, a dove descended out of heaven and I heard the father's voice and I knew who this was. He knows it so well that a few days later he goes, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not even worthy to touch that guy's sandals. So Jesus heads on about his ministry. John continues to say, hey, there's a guy you've got to go see. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I know it to be true. And then this thing happens. See, the king of the day, Herod Agrippa, is not a good dude. And he seduces his brother's wife and takes her to be his wife. And John won't take that lightly. So he speaks out against that. Herod, what you've done is a sin. You need to repent. Not only do you need to repent, our king needs to repent. He's living in sin. And so Herod grabs John and he throws him in prison. And he's been in prison for a while now. And he hears about all the works that Jesus is doing, healing, 
ministering. Specifically, Luke tells us here that he's sending his disciples in reference to a a miracle that Jesus does where he raises a boy from the dead. He hears about Jesus raised someone from the dead, and I'm in jail, his cousin, who's been faithful to him, and he sends his disciples, go ask Jesus, are you the one or am I supposed to look for someone else? He doesn't ask him whether or not there's a Messiah. That's a given. He says, are you the one? What's going on with John? Now, it's very likely that John is actually not questioning whether or not Jesus is Messiah. What John is questioning is Jesus's tactics. You're healing, you're forgiving, you're raising people from the dead. What about uniting the country, overthrowing Rome, becoming the king and ruler and all those things that were promised? What about that? When are you going to start doing that? And what John is doing is not so much questioning God as God, but he's questioning God's actions. And if you boil this all the way down, there's a question that's rolling around in John's mind that I think if we're honest as Christians, and we should always be honest as Christians, to ourselves especially, we all struggle with from time to time. And it's this, if I was God, I would do it differently. That's what John's saying. Dude, if I was Messiah, if I could raise people from the dead, I would be doing things differently. That's the question that John is struggling with. I think we all struggle with that question from time to time, and I think a lot of people we know who don't believe struggle with that question. Now, there's a problem with that question, and there's also a process as something we're supposed to do with that question. The first problem we have with that question is this assumption that we have, this preconceived idea that I have, and it's this. I tend to think of God as an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good human. And he's not. But that is kind of how I think of him in those terms. Now, the Bible does say that we're made in God's image, but I don't know that that goes both ways. For instance, my daughter has a stuffed animal. It is made in the image of a giraffe. It kind of looks like a giraffe. But if you've ever seen a real giraffe there's very little resemblance. I think that's the same way with God. I think we have to realize that he is absolutely other than us. Romans 11.33 says it like this, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways are past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. How deep are the depths of God? Unsearchable, Paul says. So what do we do when we struggle with that question? I think we do exactly what John the Baptist does. We ask. We ask. And we'll find that Jesus is not offended by John's question. So so John sends people to ask. 
Now, before I move on, what's really interesting when I get to do these studies is I read a ton of different commentaries. And what you will find out if you start reading a ton of different commentaries is people don't tend to agree with each other. Okay? So there's a whole other theory, and I find them fascinating because sometimes I think there could be even truth in both ideas. But there's a whole other theory about this story, and it goes like this. John the Baptist is sitting in prison. He's fine with it. He's got his disciples standing around outside, and he's like, dude, why are you guys out there? Like, I told you a long time ago, go follow Jesus. What are you doing waiting outside of prison? You shouldn't be a John disciple. You need to be a Jesus disciple. So go ask him what he's been doing. And it begs the question in my life, whose disciple am I? Because we have a fantastic pastor. And we have, I have great podcast Bible sermons that I like to listen to and commentaries that I love to read. And all that is good. It's all great. But we are to be disciples of one person, Jesus Christ. One person we are to be disciples of. And sometimes I think God would say, okay, you know what? There's a decent possibility he was wrong about that. Go talk to Jesus and see what he's been doing. Go see what he's been doing. The only person who's infallible. Go talk to Jesus. So that's a side note. That could be what's going on here. I'm sticking with John is wondering, why are you doing it this way? And let's see how Jesus responds to John or to John's disciples. It's verse four. It says this, Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus quotes two separate messianic prophecies from Isaiah. This is a little chunk out of Isaiah 29 and a little chunk out of Isaiah 35. I think Jesus would tell me the same thing that he tells John right here. When I come to him with the questions, he says, go back to your word. Go back to the Bible. That's where he sends John. Go back to the truths that you know about me and study them. Now, too often I ask and then I don't seek or I seek with no purpose behind my seeking. I think John here, I think we here are called to do both. God, I don't think I would do it that way. Show me where I'm wrong. Help me to understand. And I think God will point that to us out in his word and send us and give us answers. That's what he does with John. Go back to the word. When you're wondering, when you have questions, when it doesn't make sense to you, go back to my word. The second thing that Jesus does here I think is really interesting is he does this, and I think this is so true when I read my Bible from cover to cover, what Matt would call like big Bible theology. There are many times where people ask God about his actions or very often about his inactions. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? And I see very few, if any, examples in the Bible where God defends that. He doesn't go, okay, the reason that I'm not doing this, what Jesus says is, look what I've done. Look what I'm doing. I don't need to defend myself to you. I'm other, I'm greater, I'm bigger. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? But if you're curious, look at what I've done and let that show you my character. I'm healing, I'm cleansing, I'm forgiving. 
to us, he would say, I left heaven, I died for you. Look at what I've done in your life. Look at what I've done in those around you. I think this is, and I, don't, I do not do this, okay? So it's always dangerous to preach something from the front that you don't do. <laughs> I should do this. I think this is probably why there's such power in a prayer journal. Because we have such very short-term memories, don't we? We forget I have occasionally found prayer requests that I wrote down and you look at them a year later and you're like, oh man, I forgot that that thing was so stressing me out. I forgot how big of a deal that was to me and I forgot how God just fixed it. The Israelites do it, we do it. I mean, the Israelites get there and they're like, God, we're hungry. And God's like, I split the sea, okay? I can handle a little bread. How often do I do that? How often do I come to the Lord and Lord, oh my gosh, Lord, how are we going to handle this situation? And, and I think sometimes God would say to me, the same way we handled all the other situations you felt like that about, I'll be there. I'll get you through it. I'll walk beside you. I'll carry you when necessary. Same way. Remember. Remember. I think there's value in that. So I need to start writing down my prayers. There we go. Thing that I've learned from this week. Finally, something I read in a commentary I think is really interesting. The statement was this. What Jesus gives John is evidence, not proof. And very often I think that's what God gives us. Here's what John would have liked. Yes, I'm the Messiah. Get over yourself. Right? That would have been a great answer for John. Very straightforward. Yes, I'm the Messiah. Please stop sending me requests didn't make no sense, right? But instead, he says, look at what I've been doing. Is that an answer? It's kind of an answer. Points him back to the Word. But so often, when we ask God, when we seek in our Bible, when we have these questions, I think God gives us evidence and not proof. And the reason I think it is, is he desires us to be a people of faith. And I think faith is doing something in us that we don't even begin to understand And that to simply say, yeah, would require no faith and would cripple us when it came to eternity. I think it would. There's a faith here that God is trying to do. Oh, he's going to give you his word, and he's going to help you remember how he came through in the past, and he's going to provide you with evidence, but you need to have faith because he's a good God who died to forgive us. And there's, faith is doing something in us that I, I don't understand, but I think it's so valuable and so important. So now, satisfied or not satisfied, either way, with his answer, John's disciples leave. Go back to John. So if they were supposed to follow Jesus, they didn't get the memo. I don't know how this works, but they, they take the message back to John. And Jesus goes on and talks about John. Oh, sorry. Verse 6. Before I go on, he ends this little section talking to John's disciples with this weird little verse. It says this, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. I read that verse for like a week, and I, what in the world is that supposed to mean? And all the commentaries just kind of skipped over it. Just, we're just not going to talk about that one. So I sent an email to Matt, which is great. I just was like, what does this verse mean? And I will just read you his response. Um, Slightly edited because he was probably packing at the time, and so there was a few typos. But other than that, this is pretty much verbatim. 
He says in Jesus 9, now remember what this question is, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. He started his, his email out and he says, I think Jesus is very offensive. In Matthew 9, Jesus first offends the scribes, think Bible teachers, because he forgives sins without any of the temple system that they'd followed for 1,400 years as prescribed by God. Next, he offends the Pharisees by hanging out with the wrong type of people, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. Pharisees were the type of people that say, when you start figuring it out, then I will accept you. Jesus says, I accept you, now let's figure it out. Next, he offends the disciples of John. These were the folks that took spiritual disciplines way too seriously. We fast, we pray, Jesus, you're reclining and dining, you need to get serious about things here. We need to fast and pray, not party and feast. We still have all of these types of people in church. And if they really read Jesus, they will be offended and hopefully open to the possibility of being freed up from their junk because that is his mission. We all have a list of things that offend us, and Jesus probably did them. He allowed divorce. He drank alcohol. He let a woman caught in adultery go without any consequences. He is kind to the sinner and merciless with a religious person, which we all kind of like until we realize how often we're acting like the religious person. You can probably go on with this list. If I'm never upset or offended by Jesus, I am probably not listening to what he was really about and being conformed to his image, but instead trying to conform him to the image I want him to be. Jesus is very offensive. Sometimes I think, as Matt told me, I need to read these in depth. Sometimes I need to allow Jesus' actions to challenge my thoughts on things, challenge the way I go about things. Man, Jesus, are you sure about that? Yeah, I'm sure about it. Okay, then I probably need to change. I probably need to stop trying to conform you to what I think you should look like and try and be more conformed to you. Interesting little verse. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Verse 7. Now, the disciples of John have left... Okay, they've moved on. It says, As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft garments are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. John drew huge crowds. Many of these people would have gone to see John. And so Jesus turns to these people now and is like, what did you guys go out to see? Did you guys go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Did you guys go out to see a guy who just enjoyed his soft clothing? What did you go out to see? What these people went out to see was a man who absolutely stood for something, who would not back down, who would not take no, and who dedicated his entire life to a single principle. They went out to see a man of conviction. I think what the world really sits up and takes notices of is someone who's absolutely unashamed of what they believe. And I think our culture wants that so badly right now that we might elect Trump. 
I cannot, I've, I don't have an opinion on that, honestly. But I will tell you how many, I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with people who said, I'm voting for Trump. I don't agree with him, but at least he doesn't back down and he stands up for what he believes. How sad that it's not a Christian saying that. How sad that it's not us saying that. I think the world, I think our culture is sick and tired of political correctness. If we learn anything from this, that's what we should learn. Does he offend people? Absolutely. Does he draw people? Yeah. Why isn't that us? Why aren't we that stand up for what we believe? Are you going to offend some people? Yes. Did Jesus offend people? Yes. Is it okay? Yes. Do we do it lovingly and kindly? Because here's the key to me about John. Because in a minute, Jesus is going to say, John is the greatest prophet that there ever was. John absolutely stood for something, but he was also humble. That's where Christians get it wrong. When you see very often that TV preacher or that person who's supposed to be representing the evangelical faith, and they're absolutely standing up for what they believe, you know what? They're not humble. Most of the time, they're not humble. And Satan has taken down many a great man by pride. So many. But what does John say? John says constantly, I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals. What does he do all the time, though? Follow him. Follow him. Follow him. You've got to follow him. John was a man of singular conviction. I I would like to be more like that. Less politically correct. Less worried about what people say. Do I give the truth in love? Absolutely. I don't shy away from truth. John didn't shy away from truth. Did he end up in jail? Yeah. But Jesus is about to say he was the greatest prophet that ever lived. I think it's really interesting that he says that. He says that in verse 11. He says this, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one, one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Another cool little verse. Jesus says, John is the the greatest man ever born of a woman, which is all of them, right? Unless modern science really gets a hold of things. We're going to stick with that plan. But then he says this, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that because I was born after he died on the cross and John was born before he died on the cross that my mansion in heaven is going to be bigger than John's? I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means by this verse, and it's so cool and there's so much theology in this thing, is I think what he's saying is, listen, no matter how much good stuff that John could do, and he did amazing things, after the work I'm going to do on the cross... When my Father in heaven sees you, he's going to see me. And that's so much greater. It's so much greater. Isaiah 61.10, it says this. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. And now he's going to say right here in Isaiah what Jesus is talking about here. He says, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. 
He hath covered me with the robes of righteousness. And as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Jesus makes you beautiful. Jesus makes you greater than John the Baptist. Matt's been talking a lot lately in meetings that I've had with him and in other things, and he's been alluding to it in sermons about this concept that because of what Jesus gave us, we're kings and queens. Kings and queens in training is what he's been saying. We have an inheritance. Our inheritance is in heaven. Did we earn it? No. Did we deserve it? No. Should we be proud of it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we should. We should be so proud of it. Look how this verse starts, Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. See, Jesus says this about John the Baptist. He was the greatest man who was ever born of a woman. You ever wish that Jesus would say something like that about you? This verse says when he stands in front of his father, those are the kind of things he says about you. Look at Dave, look at Steve, look at Debbie, look at what they're doing for me. Look at these amazing things, how great are the... God is standing in front of his father singing our praises because he covered our sin. That should cause you to rejoice. Galatians 6.14 says this, I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think we should boast in it more. I think I should rejoice in this more. I'm greater than John. There's no, but you said it, so it must be true. Wow, I can't even wrap my mind around that. What an amazing truth. Then he says this, Verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Interesting little verse. What Jesus is alluding to right there is saying, everything's about to change. John is the end. They all prophesied and all the law until John, but I'm here now. Things are going to change. And then he says this. Did I skip that? Yeah, I skipped verse 12. I skip verse 12. Let's go back to 12. Don't skip verses. 12 says this, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Don't skip that verse. That verse is awesome. Read that one again. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. So John is in prison, right? Do you guys remember how this story ends? Herod is sitting there. He has his daughter-in-law come in and dance for him. Creepy, okay? He's like, whoo, you're hot. You can have anything you want. Okay, super creepy. And then she says, I'd like John the Baptist's head on a platter. So that's like creepy to a whole nother level, right? And John gets his head chopped off. I think that's what Jesus is alluding to here. He's saying, hey, listen, from the days of John the Baptist. Until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by forth. I looked it up because I was curious. Let me just give you a few of the prophets. Okay, some of the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah was killed with a wooden saw. Yeah. Joel was smashed in the head with a staff. Amos was tortured to death. Obadiah was tortured by Ahab, but escaped, died in peace. Micah was killed. Habakkuk was stoned. Jeremiah was stoned. There was a little season of popular stoning there. Everyone was into it. 
Ezekiel was killed by the chief of the, of the Jews. Zechariah was killed on the steps of the Jews. And Joash the king sprinkled his blood on the altar. Being a prophet is kind of a death sentence. And so I think he's looking at these people and saying, why are you surprised by this? Why are you surprised by this? But we read this story, and I've got to tell you, when I read this story, I think, okay, now John the Baptist, he sat in prison for six months, and then he got his head chopped off. Like, that is a waste. Like, he gave his whole life to you. He dedicated his whole ministry to you. You say he's the greatest person ever, and then you let him get his head chopped off. If I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. Um, And then I was thinking about that the other morning. And I thought about it like this. And I don't know if this was the Spirit talking to me or the morning coffee or however it was working at the time. But I thought, okay, how would I think about this story differently if it read like this? John the Baptist spoke out against Herod. He got thrown in prison for six months. On the eve of his execution, Jesus raptured him to heaven. Be like, that story's awesome. Why is it so different from the other one? Where's John end up? Heaven. I think we have a very different idea about or view of death than our God does. A very different view. Does Jesus weep when Lazarus dies? Yes. But sometimes I think Jesus goes, you're done. I'm taking you home. It doesn't make a difference if I rapture you or I let you get your head cut off. It's but a moment. You're going to be with me. John ends up in paradise. I don't think John got to the end and was like, in paradise, like, dude, that was a bad deal. (laughs) You let, me, you let me get my head cut off. Now I'm in heaven with you. Like, I want to go back. I miss my camel skin. I think God views death differently than we do. I think he does. Not that it doesn't break his heart. We weren't designed for this. But I think he also sees it from the other side. He's like, hey, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And trust me, the Lord is better than the body. That's why Jesus tells his disciples in chapter 10, don't even be afraid of people who can kill you. Don't even worry about that. Don't worry about it. I think God views death differently. Now we can go to 13. Okay. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. There's a bunch of prophecies in Malachi that say this. Before these large events, Elijah's going to come back. Let me read one of them from you. It's Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6. It says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. He says, I'm going to send Elijah. Jesus now says, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. The angel prophesied to Zechariah, hey, he's coming in the spirit of Elijah. So was John Elijah? That's a good question. That's why the Pharisees asked him, are you Elijah? And he goes, no. So was John Elijah or wasn't John Elijah? The answer comes in Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration because Jesus goes up to the top and up shows Moses and Elijah and no one says, what's up, John? Because Elijah is not John the Baptist. I love 
spiritual truths like that, when it's just such a common, oh, well, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, oh, there it is. It just makes so much sense. John's not Elijah. So what's going on here? What Jesus is saying is John's coming in the spirit of Elijah. And some of those prophecies about Elijah coming back were about John, but some of them are also about something to come in the future. This is the question about Jesus. Is he the suffering servant? Is he the coming king? Yes. But to people looking at it from the biblical time period, it's very hard to see those differences in prophecy. There's a term in prophecy that they call the mountain peak theory of, of prophecy. And the idea is this. When you're looking at prophecies, they can look like mountain peaks. Right? Like there's a suffering servant peak there. There's a coming king peak there. And when you look at them from a long way off, like when you look at a mountain range, they look like they're right next to each other. And it's not until you're on top of the first mountain that you realize there's a giant valley between the two. And we don't see it correctly. And someday we'll see it all correctly. I think that's what's going on here with John. Yeah, some of those prophecies were about John the Baptist. Some of them are about something else that is to come. So, interesting about John. Jesus then, he turns to the, kid, to, the, to the group there, and now he's going to chastise the group, and he says this, but to what shall I liken this generation? Okay, so now he's talking to the people who not only rejected John, they rejected his message as well. And he says this, but to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not lament. If you notice in your Bible, these are in like brackets, these words here, which normally means a quotation, but there's no biblical quotation here. What this most likely means is that this was a popular saying at the time. It would be the equivalent of our saying, you're darned if you do, you're darned if you don't. Okay, because what Jesus is saying here is like, you guys are like kids. Like, kids are irrational, aren't they? Like, we threw you a party and you didn't want a party, so we threw you a funeral and you didn't want a funeral. Like, you can't be pleased. And then he goes on, in case there was any wondering about what he means, he goes on in the next couple of verses and he says, For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. And the Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Here's what Jesus says. John came not drinking. You said he had a demon. I came eating and drinking. You say I'm a glutton. And what the reality of this is, is that man always has and always will believe that he has the right to judge God and the people who bring his messages. The important thing is that they don't have anything real to accuse us of. When I look at this, I think, okay, people accuse John. Was he a demon? No. People accuse Jesus. Was he doing righteously? Absolutely. And as we go through life, people are going to continue to accuse God of things. And if we bring his message, just like John, they're going to continue to accuse us of things. The important thing is that they don't have anything real to accuse us of. So many times there's a messenger that God wants to use and Satan will bring him down because of a secret sin. They're gonna, if you want to stand up for the gospel like John does, people are going to come at you with accusations. 
you better be above reproach. They're going to accuse you of all sorts of things that aren't true. If there's true things to accuse you of, you're probably going down. That's why Timothy says, hey, if you want to bring the message, man, you need to, you need to have your house in order. That's a very sobering little passage to me when I think about it that way. And then Jesus says this at the end, but wisdom is justified by her children. What he's saying there is this. It's he's saying the same thing he says in Matthew 7. You will know a tree by its fruit. If you're wondering what's going on, if it was good to follow John, if it was good to follow me, you just wait. Just wait and see what happens to John the Baptist's, what happens to my disciples, and what happens to people who follow their own lusts and their own sin. Just wait and see. You'll know a tree by its fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. And we know this first. We like this first. And we have this little Christian saying. We're like, do a fruit check. Right? If someone says they're a Christian, we're like, check their fruit. Check their fruit. Are they producing fruit? Do they have fruit? Fruit, fruit, fruit. But what's... <laughs> and what we normally mean by that is, are they working? Are they serving? Are they giving? But I don't see a lot of places in the Bible where fruit is compared to good works. I see so many places in the Bible where fruit is compared to character. Right? That's what Galatians says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And I know a lot of Christians who would have a lot of quote-unquote good work fruit who have no joy in their life. None whatsoever. And I think, I don't know that that's fruitful. It's certainly not attractive certainly not attractive. Jesus says here, wisdom will be known by her children. Wisdom will be known by her children. And then he does this. I'm going to have to speed up here. He does this. He begins to rebuke, this is verse 20, all the cities in which his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Interesting side note, there are no recorded miracles done in Corazon. But Jesus said, hey, if all the good works that I've done in Corazon have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. And I think it's just cool to remember that verse in John where John says, hey, if we had written down everything that Jesus did, it would fill the earth with volumes. This is an accurate account, but it's not complete. Jesus did so many more things. He's always moving. He's always working. And there's so much work that he's doing that we don't see. It's amazing. That's why I think community is so important in a church fellowship. Because when you get in community, you start seeing the work God is doing in other people's lives. It makes him bigger in your estimation. So that's what he says. He says, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable, verse 22, for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And to you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven. This was the centerpiece, the homestead of Jesus' ministry. More work was done in Capernaum than anywhere else. It's Peter's hometown. He says this, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom... It would have remained to this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. 
What does Jesus accuse these cities of? Does he accuse them of not listening? Does he accuse them of not coming out in droves to see him? Does he accuse them of not believing his miracles were real and trying to write him off to science? Does he accuse them of not believing? What he accuses them of is not repenting. They didn't repent. They didn't repent. We're supposed to spread the gospel, tell the world the good news of Jesus, but that good news comes with a caveat, which is repent. Repent. Sometimes I think I shy too far away of that part of Jesus' message. It's hugely important. Believe appears 124 times in the New Testament. Repent appears 106. Okay, they're close. They're absolutely close. And you're going to argue with people because people will say this. Well, what about the verse, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? Okay, so that's just belief, right? We don't need any repentance there. Well, read the story. It's about a jailer who has just repented and then says, what do I need to do to be saved? I'm not saying belief isn't a cornerstone. It is. Believe in who Jesus is and what he did. And then Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God will lead you to repentance. But you have to have the repentance part. And when we're walking people into this thing called the Christian life, and I pray that we are walking with people, I pray we're doing the Great Commission and going out and preaching and teaching and making disciples, don't shy away from the repent message. You must repent. That's what Jesus says. That's what he accuses these cities of. And then he says, because you didn't repent, it is not going to be good. It's not going to be good. What's important to know about this little passage is the, and I don't know Greek, but it's from all the commentaries I read, the way that this is being said. He's not like, ooh, Capernaum. He's like, oh, Capernaum. Oh, man. If you would have just have repented. His heart's broken for these cities. His heart's broken. Repent, he says. That junk is going to, it's going to destroy you on earth and in the ever after. Repent. It says this then, verse 25. At that time, what time is this? Because it's randomly they throw that in. At that time, what time? Luke tells us the disciples have just come back. Okay, so the disciples were sent out, chapter 10. Verse 25, the disciples come back. At that time, Jesus answered and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. It's an interesting little verse, and what Jesus is actually doing here is he's once again referencing back to Isaiah 29. So I want to read it for you. You can turn there if you want, and then I'm going to close it out. It's Isaiah 29, 13. This is where Jesus is going with this, saying, Isaiah 29, 13. Here's what he's saying. He says, "...inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me 
and their fear towards me is taught by the commandment of men, therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord. Woe to those who don't want to take their counsel to the Lord, he says. And their works are in the dark, and they say, who sees us and who knows us? Verse 16, surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? Or shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? What Jesus is saying here is this. Those who are willing to accept me, those who are willing to take my message, those who are willing to repent, man, this seems so plain. This seems so straightforward. This seems so easy to understand to them. But those who think that this should be difficult, those who keep searching, those who refuse to come to me for this simple truth, they can't see the forest for the trees. I've hidden it in plain sight. How many of you guys have ever been looking for your keys, okay? And you look everywhere, and then you find them on that rack by the door that says keys on top, right? And you go, who put these there? And your wife says, oh, I put them there. And you're like, don't put them there. They go in yesterday's pants, okay? If you find my keys, find yesterday's pants, put them in the pocket, I'll always find them. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. I hid it in plain sight. I hid it in plain sight. What? The knowledge that if you repent and come to me, I will give you rest. I will give you perfection. I will talk about you the way I talk about John the Baptist. You don't have to suffer those things of this city. What Jesus is saying right here is this. It isn't knowledge or intellect or education or upbringing or class or wealth or anything else that reveals God to people. It is only Jesus who reveals God. Don't look for any other source of knowledge or security or rest. I will reveal the Father to you. I think this is so important when we're sharing the gospel with people. Don't try and make, don't try and do huge intellectual arguments. It's hidden right in plain sight. Point it back to Jesus, what he did, what he said, who he is, how he's changed your life. Hopefully, verse 28 through 30, the rest that he's brought you. And for people who look at this verse and see like, see, God is cruel. He's hiding things from people. The beginning of verse 28 says, come to me, all you who labor. So he's not hiding things from people. What he's saying is you can't see it because you're unwilling to believe the message of repentance that I've brought. You're unwilling to believe it. But if you'll see it, he says, I will both reveal it to you, and then 28 through 30, I will give you rest for your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for all the good things in it. Thank you for the story of John the Baptist. Thank you for telling us, Lord, that when we doubt, when we question, that it doesn't offend you, we're simply supposed to ask. We're simply supposed to seek. Help us to find those answers in your word. Father, thank you that because of the work you did on the cross, you see us as perfected, robed in your righteousness. 
greater than even the greatest of the prophets. Father, help us to not be ashamed of your gospel, to be people of conviction, unwavering. Help us to find the knowledge of God in you, to seek only you, to be your disciples. Thank you for the word and for this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.